Welcome back to Yes Ma'am. Today I am interviewing Oliver Martineau, who is in fact my dad's cousin's son. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, so my name is Oliver Martineau. Um, I guess the long and short of it is uh, I spent the last 10 years in Asia, uh, you know, working in China and Hong Kong. I just came back to the States, uh, I guess now it's two years ago almost, which is kind of crazy. Um, and I'm reacclimating to Western life and kind of bouncing around, living in Airbnbs and haven't really settled down. Yeah. So you came back because of COVID. Do you think there's a chance of you going back to Asia? So I actually came back. I was planning on coming back for. Um, I had initially moved over to China with the idea of becoming fluent in Chinese and then coming back. It was my minor in school. And, you know, I was, I was like, I'll be there for a couple of years and then I'll move back to the States. But once you become the foreign guy who speaks Chinese, you're not allowed to leave China. Like every company wants you to stay there, basically. So, you know, I would say starting in around 2018, I really wanted to move back. And I've been at my current company, which was like real estate investment for around six years. And my boss was like, how are you going to manage the Asia office from New York? And I was like, oh, I'll figure it out. We'll be that big of a deal. Um, but so I had to come up with a plan where I would spend about half my time in the States and then half my time in Asia traveling around. You know, my job was bringing me to basically every country, country in Asia. So I was in Korea a lot and Vietnam and um, India, uh, the Philippines, Japan, Hong Kong, Singapore, all those places, and which was really cool. It was just exhausting, like traveling back and forth in between them. Um, and I obviously missed my friends and family in the States and rarely got yeah. to see them. Uh, so <clears throat> my plan, like I said, was actually to move back in May. I'd arranged that with my company of 2020. And then in whatever it was in February, the pandemic hit. And I was uh, actually I have a funny story. So I was in South Africa on a business trip uh, with my, you know, a guy on my, on my team. And we were doing our meetings. And then all of a sudden, you know, people started, you know, on the news really talking about COVID a lot. And it started to, you know, people started to become frightened about the implications of what could happen with like a widespread global virus. And, um, and Hong Kong, I think three days before we were supposed to leave, we both lived there at the time, um, said that they were going to close their borders. And you had to be back by like this deadline or you had to do a two-week quarantine. And I was like, am I allowed to curse on the podcast? Oh, yeah. yeah okay. definitely. I was like, absolutely fuck that. There's no way I'm quarantining. You had to do it in a hotel room and you had to pay for it yourself and you weren't allowed to leave the hotel room. So we're both like scrambling to find flights. And I found there was one seat left in business class flying back to Hong Kong. And since I uh, and my colleague's boss, I was like, sorry, dude, <laughs> I'm taking this. So I flew back. He ended up right after I left South Africa, instituted their own uh, like stay at home quarantine measures. And so he not only got stuck in South Africa for two weeks and wasn't allowed to leave and had to, you know, he got an Airbnb on the beach thinking he'd be able to go like surfing every day. Yeah. Nope. Couldn't leave. Um, couldn't leave the Airbnb. Um, I think he could order food. And then, you know, so after his two weeks, then he flew back to Hong Kong and I do another two weeks at Hong Kong. And when he got back, it was pretty funny. He's a, he's a British guy, um, like really hardworking, good dude. And, you know, very, uh, like very, um, I would say health minded. And so he kind of looked at the two week quarantine in Hong Kong as an opportunity to read a lot and to exercise and to come up with this really good regimen and schedule. Um, and so the first week he, you know, he was sending out challenges on Instagram or he was asking people for challenges on Instagram. So one of them was like, you know, do a handstand and while you're doing it, take off all your clothes and put them back on. And, you know, just, just cool stuff like that, I guess. And um, so the, after the first week, you know, I was talking to him every day, obviously. And he's like, he's like, it's going really well. You know, I'm getting a lot of reading done. And, you know, I, I'm actually really enjoying this personal time to myself. And then on day eight, I think I called him. And he's like, I can never fucking go to jail. He's like, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. He's like, I have to get out of this. Place. Yeah, and a full month of that by yourself is a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's funny, he did that again 
uh, he started dating a French girl and they went to France and then he had to do the two week quarantine again in Hong Kong, but he got to do it with her, which I think was a very different quarantine experience than being locked up by herself. Yeah. So clearly you're pretty up on the food ladder at your work. What's your official job title? I'm the head of Asia for my company. So I work for, I work for a New York real estate developer and we've got like investments all over the U S and, uh, they hired me. Um, at the end of 2015 to do, uh, to basically start their Asia operations. So they saw a big opportunity to raise money for real estate investments uh, from Asia into the US. And I had my own consulting company at the time that I'd started with a college buddy, um, helping US companies go into China. And like, there are so many, I have so many like, you know, horror stories of companies, American companies going into China. <clears throat> And they just get screwed over by the, chi- the local Chinese partner because you need a partner to go into China and they're just not the way that they do business is their default setting or their MO is cheating you like a hundred percent. So even if you get all of the contracts lined up and you say like, you know, explicitly, here's what I'm responsible for and here's what you're responsible for. And here's the agreement between us. They always find a way. It's just like, that's how business is done over there. And a lot of Americans come in and they'll like, you know, go on a trip and be like, oh, we met all these really good partners and there's so many opportunities. I'm like, no, nah, they're going to fuck you over. And you just have no idea what's going to happen yet. Um, my, my favorite example of that is uh, I had a friend who started a, like a headphones uh, factory. Or, so, so he has a yeah. headphones company in the States. He started manufacturing in China and he found a local business partner who would like hire everybody and get all the production done. And first year, they're just losing a ton of money and he couldn't figure out why. And so he flew over to China, you know, went to the factory, everything looked fine. And then he went back at night to see like by himself without his Chinese partners to try to figure out what's going on. And all of the workers from the China, from the, from his factory walked across the street after they got off their shift to another identical factory and continued making headphones that that guy, that his Chinese partner was selling at a discount. <laughs> so like he basically oh, wow. stole the entire business model from this guy. And he's like, oh, that's why I'm losing all my money. It's because this guy's just actively stealing yeah. all my stuff. That's kind of insane. So <laughs> have you ever had a client that was just insanely past the point of reason trying to do stuff like that? I got yeah, good stories. I was actually telling this one recently. <clears throat> so I have a uh, I have a Vietnamese partner, business partner, um, who's incredibly smart. She's I think she's probably around. It's hard to tell. Uh, it's hard for me to tell sometimes how old people are. I'd say like forty five or fifty. And um, she started with nothing, literally. Like she grew up in a hut in the jungle. Um, wow and has risen to be worth you know a ton of money i would say approaching 100 million dollars um by helping vietnamese people move their assets offshore um and she's very into nlp are you familiar with nlp i'm not so, you know, so i'm i'm not super familiar either but it's it's neurolinguistic programming which is essentially it's kind of like tony robbins stuff so you um you constantly tell yourself like, I'm amazing and I'm skinny and I'm healthy. And, okay. like, you know, you can't, you're not allowed to have a negative thought. And so I loved going, it's kind of funny going to their office. I'd go in there to meet with her investors and like pitch them on our projects and all the staff, she had like a hundred staff in the morning, they'd all hold hands and stand in like, you know, in this big connected circle around the office. And she would start this almost like ritualistic chant of I am happy, I am positive, I am beautiful, and just go down the whole list and all of the staff would like chance after her. And I would just sit in the background. They're like, do you want to join? I was like, no, I'm okay. Um, but extremely successful company. And I think my favorite story from working with them is she went on an NLP retreat. Like she she initially had gone on a retreat and there's this Indian uh, Singapore guy. So they're a ton of like Singapore is uh, Chinese and indian are the two largest diaspora that are there so they're you know they speak mandarin and english and and it's my understanding at least from like that movie uh rich famous 
uh, crazy agents. rich agents. I've yeah, never seen that, agents. and I knew the name. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I have seen it, but it seems like from that, that's where a lot of like wealthy people from around Asia go and like build homes, and it's kind of the vacation area. Um, not necessarily vacation, but it's a yeah. That's it's pretty spot on. It's a it's a tax haven, so they don't have any income tax there, uh, like Hong Kong. <clears throat> And so a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, Asian countries have very heavy tax regimes. And so what people will do once they reach a certain amount of money is try to, you can actually buy citizenship there too. So a lot of people will buy citizenship for like a million bucks, knowing, comparing that against their tax bill in their own country and being like, oh, it's less money for me to just buy a citizenship and move over there. And there's also a really, really nice city um, with amazing food. And, you know, they've got a ton of interesting cultures that are kind of clashing there. They're not clashing, mixing very well, I would say. Um, so it's a cool place to go. Um, but in any event, this guy had apparently been in the Singaporean military. Um, and so it's like 300 Vietnamese people and me. And we are the only two people that like really speak English, except for his translator. And they're making us do all this ridiculous stuff. Like <clears throat> it's basically different like uh, events that are meant to push you past your limits. Um, it was very culty. Um, okay. and so it's like, you absolutely have to listen to whatever this guy says and you can't question him. And I, I'm like, so I was immediately, you know, I'm like a, on the other end of the spectrum question authority. If somebody tells you to do something kind of like, fuck them. Um, so this guy's shouting and yelling at everybody. And there's a woman, a Vietnamese woman on a loudspeaker translating what he's saying in Vietnamese. So the entire thing was ridiculous in my opinion, but um, we had to run a mile around the top of this mountain that was, uh, it's on the, I think it's called Natrong. It's like an hour away from Saigon on the coast. It is called Natrong. So, uh, so right as we start, one of my colleagues, who's like the, one of the lead saleswomen and was a really nice, uh, really nice person that I got along with. Great. She's like sprains her ankle and she's carrying a bag for some reason because he didn't really tell us what was going on. And so I walked with her and carried her bag to like, you know, to finish the loop because, you know, I'm a gentleman and uh, being a gentleman in that situation, when we got to the end, there was this big uh, set of like tennis courts, like where everyone was sitting down and we came in last and she was limping a mile. And I was like, I was like, you shouldn't even finish this. I was like, you should go home and rest. And there are, you know, Vietnamese minions of this guy yelling at her like, go faster. And I'm like, what the fuck? Um, so we come into the clearing and I sit down with my colleagues or like a, the partner company and this guy's standing in front of everyone. And he's like, Oliver, and I was like, Oh my God. It's like, stand up. <laughs> Bear in mind, I'll keep repeating this. No one speaks English. this guy. So I stand up and he goes into this rant for like five minutes about how I'm racist because I'm not respecting because he's a brown guy and like white guys never listen to brown guys and just like like calling me a racist in front of like all these people and all the Vietnamese people are like smiling. Yeah, because they don't understand what's happening. Just yeah. like you're in trouble. Yeah. So I uh, um, once that finished, I had some words for him about calling me a racist in front of uh, my business partners, which was like really weird. And then about half an hour later, I found out that I was uh, kicked off. Um, the, the training program and had to go home. And since they didn't translate when he was yelling at me, um, none of the mic, like none of the business colleagues that I had over there, like really understood what had happened. And so they're like, did you like, what did you say to him? Did you do something? And I was like, no, he's called me a racist from like 600 people. I'm not going to take that line down. Yeah. There definitely is a lot of issues because in this case, it can be perceived that way, but it's not like more of just a cultural difference. I think uh, I think what it was looking back um, was that it it was very cult like, and so any questioning of leadership has to immediately be put down, right? And I think the easiest thing to do with him being the only Indian guy yeah. and me being the only white guy was to frame it like that. So it was like, oh, he's being a bad person instead of he's he's questioning my authority, and that's why I can't be here anymore. <laughs> so. Onto slightly different topics. What was your first ever experience traveling for work? Oh, that's a good question. Um, here, let me think. 
So that would have been right after I graduated from school. I got a job at an American uh, real estate developer that was raising money in China. And they sent me to Qingdao. So I went to Shanghai first, but I wasn't really working there. We had an office there. So it was just, it wasn't what I would call a business trip. Um, they sent me to Qingdao and, you know, I studied Chinese in college, so I could speak pretty well, but at nowhere near fluent. Yeah. And, uh, I remember one, all business in China is done over heavy drinking. Um, so like you go out and drink so much and, you know, have very bad, uh, second day hangover. Um, but <clears throat> Qingdao is known for its beer festival every year. Um, so they, it's on the beach. Uh, they have uh they'll bring out like mini kegs to all these outdoor tables and people will just you know drink a, a massive amount of beer so i did that with the business partners but i remember uh my most vivid memory from that first trip was getting in the cab and i was talking to the cab driver practicing my chinese i was like what's the population of Qingdao?" it's like oh it's a very small city very small there are only around 8 million of us it's like 8 million it's like the biggest city in america by far from china it's like tiny by, you know, like yeah. compared to Shanghai or Beijing, which are 35 or 40 million, which is a crazy huge, it's bigger than most countries, you know. Yeah, does it ever get overwhelming being surrounded by that many people? Uh, you just get used to it very quickly. Um, there's some things that even after a decade over there, I just couldn't deal with. One of, the, one of which is there's no respect for personal space because it's not part of their culture. So if we were having this conversation in China, you know, I'd probably be like very much in your personal space. There's no this like in, in, in the West or in the States, you've got like a three foot invisible radius around you that people yeah. aren't really allowed to enter unless they know you. Yeah, it's like and, acquaintance, three feet, <laughs> friend, two feet, family yeah. member, one foot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And for them, it's just straight in immediately. Uh, so the thing that really still bothered me was... Uh, Luckily, I haven't had to go to the office in my job for a long time. Um, but when you get onto or off of an elevator, there's no let everybody off first. And then people get on. Um, it's like a mad dash to get on. Oh, that sounds terrible. So when you're getting off, I've had to like push people out of yeah. my way to get off the elevator. And they like don't react like I'm doing anything bad. It's like, you know, bobbing around. <laughs> and it, that still frustrated me. And I'd have to like, you're like, okay, I'm about to get on the elevator, take a deep breath, you know, don't elbow any Chinese people in the face. <laughs> so after graduating college, you got that job and then you started your own startup after that, or was there anything in between? Um, so first I worked for an American company. Then I worked for a, a Chinese real estate developer that wanted to that it was actually building projects in the states so they were building hotels in like seattle and uh, san francisco and they wanted the ceo uh, i basically worked directly with him wanted somebody who understood that and who spoke the language so that he you know it's a big problem if you think about it and there, there are a ton of consulting companies that are in the space the language and the culture for business are so different that when you try to go across borders or the Pacific in this case, um, there's just so much that you don't know. And so having somebody who understands the culture and how to talk to people and how business is done is actually really important kind of niche little ability. And so, uh, so for him, yeah, I helped build hotels in the States and I have a tremendous amount of ridiculous stories about that guy. He used to like actively show me his bank account on his phone and he had $300 million in cash in it. Um, and he had like, we, our office was in one of his hotels and he had like a Lambo and a Ferrari downstairs. He's just a ridiculous guy. That is insane. And the fact that he's showing that to you is, oh, it's like, says wait. a lot about his ego. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He also smoked four packs of cigarettes a day. So like every meeting was just him literally lighting his next cigarette with the last um and that was back when i smoked so i had uh it was another custom in china's they they you always have to offer people cigarettes so the fact that he was smoking four packs a day i was also smoking a ton because like every other cigarette he was trying to hand it to me um but then i started my own company after that which was uh which lasted for about two years and then my current company found me through uh just a headhunting agency and said, do you want to start our office in Asia? And I was like, hell fucking yes, I do. <laughs> so 
a lot of what has helped you so far is having that minor in Chinese. What did you major in? Uh, economics and then minors in finance and Chinese. Um, economics was a lot of minors. Yeah, <laughs> totally useless. <laughs> it's really just people look at it and they're like, oh, like finance and economics, you must know business. And it's like, uh, I didn't really learn that much <laughs> at the end of the day. Yeah. So what exactly does that focus on versus like how much of what you learned through those majors is actually applicable? It's a good question. I would say very little. Um, I would say uh, the actual like practical things that I that I can use uh, or that I use now are accounting and like uh, doing spreadsheet work on you know, here's a company and the entire structure of a company. So here's our profits and, you know, um, here's the breakdown of all of our sales and all of our costs and how to figure that out, I would say is helpful. But the economics, the, the economics major is more of a theoretical um, understanding of how the economy works. And after I graduated, I actually found a totally different school of economics, which I think is much it does a much better job of explaining the world than what I learned at college. So now looking back at my economics degree, I think it was totally useless because not only was it not applicable to my job, it was also incorrect. Um, and it was only studying on my own where I found, cause I, cause I do love economics, uh, which is a weird thing to love, you know, it's super boring. Um, but it's competitive though. Yeah. If you have that competitive streak in you, you can be drawn to it. That makes sense. So was that always the plan then when you were in college taking these classes was to go into more of this business side or were you looking at something more closely tied to the economy? Um, so initially I wanted to be a doctor before I got to college. And then I realized that I'm terrified of blood and surgery. I remember uh, when I was at boarding school, we had to like, you know, do a fetal pig dissection and I was just not about it at all. And the idea of like seeing that on a regular basis uh, made me quite queasy. Um, so then my, the other thing that I liked a lot was economics. So that's why I chose that. Um, <clears throat> the, I think the plan was honestly, as like a young guy was just to make as much money as possible. So I wanted to go into investment banking and I graduated in 2010. So um, the job market when I graduated was really bad. And I interviewed with a few firms and got an offer at one and uh, decided not to take it. But um, I'm really glad that I didn't pursue that path because all of my friends that got into that got absolutely smoked with work. They were working like hundred hours a week I think the worst horror story was one of my buddies uh, who worked at Lazard, which is like a, a big uh, investment bank. And he decided to quit after he was at the office for four days straight, um, you know, drinking Red Bull and probably doing cocaine to stay up yeah. the entire time. Um, and I just like looked back at that. I was like, thank God I didn't go into that line of work. Um, but I guess to answer your question, it was just kind of like a natural evolution of things. You know, as you know, my family, we lived in France. My first years of high school, so I already spoke French. And when I got to school, I wanted to take a different language. And I believe it was a course requirement. Um, and so I just kind of on a whim took Mandarin because it was so different. And, uh, you know, at the beginning, it's funny, there were, I would say, I would say most of the class was uh, like, you know, not Asian people. Um, and then by the time I got to my senior year and like advanced Chinese, it was like just me and all of the other people were ABCs, so American born Chinese. Mm -hmm. So they had like, their parents spoke Chinese in the house and they like didn't really speak fluently or, and they couldn't read and write. Um, so it was, it was just like all of a sudden I'm like the one you know, like white guy who speaks Chinese. And then it's like, well, if you're that guy, then yeah. this is what you have to go do. <laughs> no, it's a very niche area. Mm -hmm. You don't find a lot of people for, so it opens up a lot of doors. Mm -hmm. So this is, I have to ask this because my dad multiple times made the joke that I should ask you. Can you explain 5G? 5G technology? He just said, ask him about the 5G. I don't really know what that means. <laughs> um, so there's a 
theory that I actually am not super on board with. Um, I just love reading conspiracy theories. Um, I'd say I ascribe to about 10% of them. <clears throat> um, but uh, there, I, I believe what your dad's talking about, I was telling him that the first 5G rollout in the world was in Wuhan, um, which is where the outbreak started. And okay. so that theory, let's see if I can remember it properly, and I don't necessarily agree with this. I just thought it was interesting. Um, was that was that the there's something about the radiation levels that come from 5G towers that cause a lot of health problems, um, and that some of the symptoms of COVID could be ascribed to um, high radiation levels. Now, I, after having lived in Asia for a long time, have a very different theory on what actually happened. Um, so. And I'll just say it this way. So I, I lived through a very interesting time in Hong Kong. Yeah. So before I moved there, it's like this, it's a very metropolitan city. Um, it's similar to New York and it has really fine dining and excellent nightlife. Um, and it's just, a, it, it was a very cool place to be. So I always wanted to live there because I've been in Shanghai, which is a ve- also a very cool city, but it, you feel like you're in Asia. Whereas in Hong Kong, you don't, you kind of feel like you're in the West, right? Because there's so yeah. many British people there and Australians and Americans. And of course, it was <laughs> only recently that it stopped being an independent ninety-seven. Uh, so the yeah. British handed it back to the Chinese with a 50-year treaty in 97 that said, you know, there will be a very slow transition handoff back to you. And so about a, maybe a little less than a year after I moved there, <clears throat> um, the Chinese government, what happened was, let me see if I can remember this. So a Taiwanese uh, or a, hon- a person, a Hongkonese person killed a Taiwanese person um, and or maybe a Chinese citizen. And the Chinese government wanted to extradite them back to China. And Hong Kong has a strict non-extradition treaty with China. The reason being, it makes a lot of sense if you're Hong Kong, actually. The Chinese government hates and has for a long time, hates people in Hong Kong. Because a lot of the wealthy people in China will try to get out of China and they'll keep their assets in Hong Kong because it's untaxed and they don't have to worry about their company being seized. Um, And, you know, they're like that. That's very similar to what happened to Jack Ma, if you know that entire story, which is, so he was was the CEO of Alibaba, which is one of the biggest companies uh, or was one of the biggest companies on the planet. And... Once they reach a certain, once the company reaches a certain size, the Chinese government basically came in and forced him to give a portion of it to them, um, which was like an internal sale. Um, and so he's not allowed to leave the country at the same time as his family right now. So, oh. yeah, so his family's basically, it's very USSR. His family's like held captive when he's overseas. And if they want to go overseas, then he has to stay in China. And so it's, a, it's actually a very real and very scary threat. If you become a big company in China, you're going to draw a lot of attention from the CCP and they're going to want to control the company and what you do. So Hong Kong had been a safe haven for that. And so it makes sense to have a non-extradition treaty because you could have some trumped up charge in China and say, well, we're just going to, you know, this guy's in Hong Kong and he yeah. broke XYZ rule. And so we're bringing him back. And then you're fucking, and, you know, you're, you're sent down the memory hole into some terrifying Chinese prison. Um, so the Hong Kong, the, the people of Hong Kong were very worried about uh, China wanting to end this. And Carrie Lam, uh, who I believe is still the president, but who was the president at the time of Hong Kong, um, had a lot of Chinese ties and she was going to let this person be extradited. And so it became this whole thing um, which was really beautiful. First, there were millions of people in the streets marching. Hong Kong, I think, has a population of like seven or eight million. And so a million people in the streets marching. Oh, that's surprisingly small. Yeah. It's actually really small. It's not a big island, and the territories aren't that big either. Um, you could probably, I mean, there are races around it that take like a couple hours. Um, so um, the people were in the streets like singing songs and handing out like there were a bunch of little girls in white dresses handing out roses and uh and you know like pamphlets about why they didn't want to have this law uh be enacted because it would it would be a big step towards we're part of china now and china's tried a couple times to do uh like they wanted to to implement a, a chinese communist uh um 
I just forgot the word that I was looking for. Um, regime? No, not a regime. Uh, a curriculum um, oh. in the schools, so that when you know little kid, little Hongkongese kids go to school, they've got to like salute the CCP. And so obviously, people in Hong Kong yeah. were very upset about that. Um, then I'll tie this back to COVID in a second. Um, so you have a million people in the streets. It's very peaceful. Then you had uh, it started to get violent. It was very small groups uh, getting violent. And <clears throat> there were a lot of videos in Hong Kong of people who were being violent and fighting the cops speaking Mandarin. And of course, Mandarin is the mainland language. Um, everyone in Hong Kong speaks Cantonese. So the fact that the people who were getting violent were speaking Mandarin led a lot of people to believe that those were basically CCP members who had come over. And they didn't like the fact that there were peaceful protests. So let's make these protests violent. So now we can say, oh, you guys are being unreasonable. And, you know, we're going to okay. now we have motive. And this part is theorized, correct? Yeah, I would say there's pretty good evidence. Yeah. It, it, and I also, as a rule of thumb, don't believe anything that the CCP says. Um, it's like starting with economics, like any numbers that have come out of China are totally made up. Um, and it's really trickling down to anything. Um, in fact, in Taiwan, which I think is fascinating, uh, there, there's a team that works for the government of around 500 people, and their entire job is to see what social media posts get banned in China. Because if it's getting banned, the, the, the assumption is that that's what the CCP doesn't want you to see, and so therefore it's the truth, right? Um, like Actually, a lot of doctors at the beginning of the pandemic in China were disappeared um, who were saying this is really bad. This is way bigger than the Chinese government's letting on. Like, so this all takes us to you've got, you know, peaceful protests. Some of them are getting violent. Um, like I saw, you know, bricks getting torn up out of the streets. They've got cobblestone streets a lot in Hong Kong and throwing them through bank windows and lighting banks on fire. And then all of a sudden, um, COVID hits, right? And then it's you're not allowed to grab, gather in groups of more than two, and everyone's got to stay at home. So many, many people in Hong Kong believed that the virus was from a lab and that it was intentionally released by the Chinese government to take back Hong Kong. And whether or not you believe that's true, that's exactly what happened, right? And so the- I've the, heard a lot of theories about like that part. I haven't actually, most theories when people explain them don't include all of that history behind it, but that is important to keep in mind. And, and it's, again, something like that is extremely hard to prove. I tend to lean towards that being true because it's just so convenient for the Chinese government and they're such bad people. Like I'm sure you know about like the concentration camps that they have yeah. um, in Xinjiang with the Uyghurs. They're just not good people. And so- The way that they've been extraditing North Koreans back to North Korea is just terrifying. And, and they support, you know, they support the North Korean regime. Mm -hmm. It's Kim Jong-un, right? Yeah. Um, but like- they're just not good people. They're building military bases. Like I'm sure you've heard about the islands that they're building off the coast of the Philippines on top of coral reefs. Oh, wait, um, I did hear about that one. So like everyone actually, because I do a lot of business in these countries, like people in Korea are terrified of Chinese expansion. People in Vietnam are terrified of Chinese expansion. I think it's a really mm -hmm. real threat and they don't really mask it that much. You know, it's yeah. like you're building military bases all over these places. Um, and it's like, no, no, we just, you know, we just want some more soldiers near you guys. It's no big deal. <laughs> it's like, and they've become an extremely powerful country over mm -hmm. a very short period of time, which is a bit unprecedented. So, in terms of, we've talked a lot about the differences in between China and the United States. What's the most shocking similarity that you've noticed? Um, that's an excellent question. I would say that in all of my travels, um, most people are fundamentally good people. And so what I mean by that is there's a lot of, I see this in the States and you see it in China now because there's been a lot of propaganda, but there's this idea that like Chinese people are bad or they're all communists or the reverse is like Americans are all bad and they hate us and they're trying to, you know, they're trying to crush our country, which is the message from the CCP right now. Um, but it's the people are all good and that they are overwhelmingly, you know, your average person on the street is a good person and they're, they care a lot about their families and they care a lot about getting ahead in life and improving themselves. And that's something that I see everywhere that I go. Um, I would say one of the biggest misconceptions that Americans have about China is that uh, it's very poor still. Um, 
the the big cities have incredible wealth and you're speaking specifically about the middle class like everyone in china that i know has an iphone and they go to starbucks and mcdonald's and you know they go on vacations and so um there's there isn't there isn't in china this like you know this this widespread poverty it certainly exists but it exists in the states as well um and there isn't this like we're communists there's actually you know, I tell people this all the time. It's much easier to start a business in China than it is in the States because you don't have to pay taxes really until you reach a certain size. So I have many friends who have their own companies and it's kind of this little like game that they play with the government that the government also knows what's going on, which is we're just going to report that we break even and we're going to take all of our income in cash. And then it's like, oh, we don't have to pay taxes because we didn't make any money. And that works until you get to a certain size, at which point it stops working and they do the yeah. Jack Ma, which is they come in and they take a portion of your company and maybe you start paying taxes. Um, but that's what I, I would say the biggest similarities are. It's like most people just want to better their lives and they want to make sure that they're, the next generation has a better life than them. And that's really what they're working towards. And there isn't any ideal, like the ideal ideology, excuse me, behind it um, or any you know, motive to take over the world or expand or anything yeah. like that. It's not, you know, because uh, the Chinese people are starting to think of that about the state. So I'm with some of my friends now. Um, and there are definitely certain Americans that think that, you know, every Chinese person is a spy <laughs> coming over to steal our trade secrets. Uh, and that's just also not the case, you know? Yeah. It's the same thing in the United States. People are, it's part of our culture to try to, to get ahead. Mm-hmm. We're encouraged. We are a meritocracy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a big conception is that in a communist country, there isn't meritocracy, but is that true at all? That there is not a meritocracy in a country? Or there's not like even the idea or the goal or idea of meritocracy? I would say it depends on the communist country. So China, I would say is communist up until Xi Jinping, which was, uh, I think he came to power in 2016. Or 2015, and he consolidated power in 2017. Um, up until then, I would say the government of China wasn't even really communist. Uh, what does that mean? Because so communism means you've got the central control of capital by the government, essentially. Like yeah. the, the government owns everything. There's no private ownership, and that hasn't been the case in China in a long time. Like Deng Xiaoping, uh, who succeeded uh, uh, Mao Zedong. Really, he had a program called the, uh, I can't remember what it's called in English. It's called Gaga Kaifang in uh, Chinese, which means like the economic opening up policy. And so, like I said, it's very easy to start a business. There's obviously private ownership, people in their houses, like something like 70% of Chinese wealth is in uh, real estate. So, you know, people don't buy stocks there as much. It's mostly like if you want to make an investment, you buy a second or third house. It's the common move over there. And everyone has European cars or American cars. Everyone has cell phones. So they, they kind of have this dynamic where like at the top, it's communist with the policies that they're setting. Um, so it's centrally controlled that way. But at the bottom, they understand that they have to let those things happen in a very capitalistic free market way to amass, to have amassed the wealth that they have. Mm-hmm. Like, if they, like if you look at Venezuela, that's where the government really controls every layer of the economy. And so that's why it will continue to be poor is because everything is centrally controlled. Whereas in China, they, their, their strategy has been let's control the top, like high level, how the economy is operating, which gets into like credit and stuff like that, which I won't go into. Um, but at the bottom, we're just going to let people do whatever they want, which is it's also a very effective way of remaining in power because the if people are making more money and they're able to go on vacations and their kids are going to, you know, NYU to study yeah. uh, or any of the UC schools, right. Um, then, then people are getting happier. And so they aren't going to like resist the government. Whereas if everyone was poor and you had, you know, 1.3 billion people who were still in poverty, they would be really pissed at the government. And that would be a yeah. big problem for the CCP. <clears throat> so we've talked a lot about China, and that's where you spent most of your time. Mm-hmm. But with the other countries that you've traveled to, you've traveled to a lot of Asia. Is there any countries that you wouldn't return to? Good question. Uh, China. <laughs> <laughs> I actually love Chinese people. I just don't. Uh, the country's headed in the wrong direction. Um, 
I love South Korea. Uh, the people there are amazing. They're the hardest working people I've ever met. Um, they drink so much. Uh, there's actually a very normal phenomenon there for Korean business people. It's like they go blackout at dinner every night and they go to sing karaoke. And then the next morning they will uh, go do uh, vitamin drip IVs. Um, so they're called Cinderella's. And then I believe the, the way that they say it is like Cinderella. Um, so they all go get the Cinderella IVs and then they go back to work. And I've done them and they do like bring you back from the dead. So you can go back to work. That's kind of surprising because um, those are popping up around the United States quite a bit. Uh, I've definitely, definitely tried those if you haven't. They're really good. Um, actually, when I had COVID last week, I went and did one of those and felt a lot better afterwards. And then uh, I, I would say my other favorite, I don't really like the Philippines um, or I like Thailand, but not Bangkok. There's like a lot of very strange sex tourism there that is a big, it's just gross to me. And like, I don't like mm -hmm. seeing it. Um, and it was very big in Manila um, and very big in Bangkok. Uh, so I don't really like those cities. Um, I absolutely love Vietnam. I highly recommend that everyone go there. Oh yeah, Vietnam is absolutely gorgeous. It's gorgeous. The food's amazing. Nicest people on the planet. Oh, yeah. um, it's funny. I've talked to like you know guys who were in the Vietnam War, um, who've like lost limbs or their you know their villages were destroyed, and they harbor no ill will towards Americans, um, which is very I guess like you know Zen Buddhist of them. But it's it's the idea that it's like. It's not, which I think is a really important distinction that a lot of people don't make. Um, you know, what your government does or what a certain group of people that you're associated with do doesn't apply to the whole group. And that's a mistake that I think a lot of people make in the States, you know, whether it's in politics or whatever else. It's like, if you're a member of this group, then you are responsible for everything that this group does, which is not true. Like, it, yeah. it harkens back to the point that I just made, like, most people are good and they're really just concerned about themselves and their family and getting ahead. Like that's, that's your average person on planet earth. Um, that's, yeah. That's also something that like when my dad and my sister and I went to Vietnam, we noticed as well, we went to the museum mm -hmm. about the Vietnam wars right on the first level near the entry. They have an entire section talking about the protests in the United States against the war yeah. as well. So they're not trying to everything together it's right. much more like let's look at this objectively right which is important and because of that you know they uh it, i think it helps you move past like collective societal trauma right so it's like this bad thing happened to us if you're constantly blaming another group right and saying our lot in life another good example i, I think this applies in a lot of asia like the Japanese have all the reason in the world to still hate us, right? Like, yeah. we dropped, we, it, we're the only country on the planet to have dropped nuclear bombs on another country and totally wipe out two cities and kill hundreds of thousands of people. And there is an ill will. And, you know, if, if they were still holding on to that collectively, they wouldn't have been able to advance as a, as a society. And, like, Japan was, I mean, at one point in the 80s, basically the wealthiest country on the planet, like in per capita terms. And, you know, there was, a, I think the, there was a block next to the Imperial Palace in Tokyo that was worth more than like all of the real estate in Manhattan. Um, really? Yeah. Like they, but, but had they held on to that World War II, like these people are responsible for our poverty and for all the problems mm -hmm. that we're having, they wouldn't have been able to move past it, which is the same in Vietnam. Like Vietnam is, I still wouldn't call it like a developed country, um, but you know, Ho Chi Minh and Hanoi are very nice cities. Uh, there are people who are like really building wealth there. Like the, uh, the uh, partner company that I mentioned, um, a lot of the people who work there really like uh, Americans don't appreciate this. I, I, I don't think because we don't travel enough. And so you don't see like stark poverty in other places, right? Like I've been to Africa a lot. Um, and even in Asia, you see this all over the place. There are people who like literally have nothing and they're still happy. Yeah. And, and not seeing that uh, as an American kind of skews your worldview. Um, and so the reason I bring this up is because people in those countries where there is poverty, it's not a I'm stuck in this. It's a there's opportunity for me to get out of it, which is the Vietnamese mentality. And so I, like, I know people who I, uh, in addition to the woman that I mentioned, 
who have started with nothing and you know they work hard and they figure out something that they're good at and they make money and become successful and then they have nice lives and it's it's really beautiful to see i think yeah and that, that's why i recommend everyone travel as much as possible because you get to see you get to see that in action right um which is something you don't see in the states and i think it's the root cause of a lot of our problems is that people don't appreciate people here have no idea how good we have it it's, it's yeah. kind of crazy it's um, tough to say Americans are privileged because obviously even in America, there's different levels of that. There's mm-hmm. people who are at great disadvantages because of race, class, gender. And then there's people who are even more privileged than that. But just at the base level of American like economics, there's so much privilege compared to the rest of the world. Right. And we, we disagree, I would say, fundamentally on. Uh, on, a, on a few things, but to me, and this is kind of the way that I'm trying to frame this, I guess, there's a huge focus on the state in states on uh, like hierarchies. And so like, because I am X, Y, Z, there's somebody somewhere keeping me down, right? Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in Asia, you don't see that. And Asia is a place, by the way, that has for a long time been extremely racist and like, yeah. compared to like, compared to our standards, nuts. Like the stuff that I hear over there is so much worse. I know I've also heard some pretty bad stuff over um, there. It's just like really blunt. Like, oh, I don't like that. Um, <clears throat> but there isn't this idea that, you know, because like in China, like I, I would say, I would say close to half, if not more of the companies that I work with over there are run by women. And so even though women have been at like a distinct disadvantage to men um, in China, it's not like a chip on the shoulder. And I don't want to say that like, like, uh, I don't want to say that in a negative way, I guess. But in the States, there's this idea where it's like, because I'm this, like, I don't have the same opportunities afforded to me, which I think is a big problem with people's mindsets, because then you're, you're thinking at a disadvantage as though because of this, I won't be able to achieve other things or I'll have a harder time, which might be true, but it also puts a, you're putting a limit on yourself by thinking that way. Yeah. Your mindset is an important factor in your success. Right. And so if it's, I can't do this because I am this, then you're actually putting a self-imposed limit on what you can accomplish. Whereas in Asia, I don't see that happen. There's no, I grew up in a hut in the jungle. And so, and I'm, you know, and I'm like there because there are minorities in Asian countries too. Or like I'm a, you know, I'm a, um, I'm a minority with my own country. Um, like the Uyghurs, for instance, in China, or anyone who's not Han Chinese, um, they don't put ceilings on themselves. And so I think that's the reason I, I see Asia eventually taking over. I mean, it's going to obviously just for population reasons, um, the total wealth wealth of the West, just because. They don't impose those limits on themselves. There's no, oh, my life is so hard. And so like, you know, I can't, I can't like move up. There's none of that at all. Yeah. Which I, which is something that I think is very beautiful. And I wish more Americans thought that way. It would be very nice. So when it comes to taking care of your mindset and your attitude in order to be successful, what do you personally do for yourself? Um, Meditation is very important. Um, I think that one of the most important things you can do is figure out how your subconscious works. <clears throat> so to the point that I was just making, um, it's funny to listen to these things. So uh, I'll, I'll just use an example or an anecdote to, to kind of mm-hmm. illustrate what I'm talking about. I remember being, I was in LA when I moved back from, uh, from Asia. Um, and I remember going into a store and just talking to the, like, the, the person working there. And they started telling me how they really wanted to start a business and they had this great idea. And they were like, but Trump's president right now. And I was like, so? And they're like, well, I can't start a business if Trump is president. And I was like... That makes no sense. Right. But, but so the, the reason I want to illustrate, I wanted to bring that up is because it illustrates how ridiculous people's subconsciousness can be. So that is what that really is. It's, it's kind of layered. So if you take it from the top, it's like mm-hmm. Trump is president, so I can't do this. But if you unpack that, so if you meditate and you go into your subconscious to figure out what that really means, that's really, I'm too scared to start a business, right? It's, I'm not good enough. There's no way that I'm going to be able to do this. So let me find something else that I can say, this is a reason why I can't do this. And so when you understand the way that your brain works and you know what your fears are and you know what's holding you back, 
then you can address those things and pass them um, because everyone puts limitations on themselves constantly. Like, you know, I, uh, right now I'm looking to move into cryptocurrency as an industry. And so when I was doing this meditative process, it's like, <clears throat> so my first thought when I started applying to jobs was like, I don't have any experience in tech, right? Like I work in finance. Yeah. So these people aren't going to look at my resume because I don't have this experience. And then if you unpack that, what is that really? It's, well, I don't think I'm good enough for this job, right? And the reality is there's, there's anything that you want out there. You just have to figure out how to find what it is for you. And of course, a lot of companies will say, well, you know, because you don't have tech experience, you haven't worked in fintech before, we don't want to hire you. That doesn't mean that every single company on the planet is going to say, no, I won't hire you because you don't have that experience. And so once I kind of dealt with, okay, that's one of the things that I am personally imposing on myself that's holding me back. And I figured that out. Then you say, well, of course there's an opportunity. I just have to find the right company. And it's like, eventually I'm doing, I'm doing uh, final rounds at a crypto company where I'm going to be vice president of sales. Um, I'm doing my final rounds tomorrow, actually. So I have to do a presentation. I have to make a presentation <laughs> after this, but, uh, but had I, what a lot of people do is at that first point, they'll stop. And so they'll say, I don't have this experience. So I'm not even going to start the process of looking for these jobs. Right. And so understanding your subconscious and understanding what it is that you're doing yourself that's holding you back is a really important thing. And it's just really going into your, it's, it's a meditative process. It's going into your mind and figuring out why do I think I'm not good enough for something? Why do I think I can't do something? Um, you know, why, why am I afraid to take risks? Why am I afraid to, you see this, you see this a ton with people who are in like dead end jobs or careers and they mm -hmm. fucking hate them and they just stay there. And the reason yeah. is they're too afraid to say, I'm good enough to go look for something better than this. Right. It's that, it's that comfort. It's, it's like the devil that, you know, and wanting to remain in that instead of taking the risk that you might go do something else and fall flat on your face. And what's so ironic about the entire thing is that's exactly how you get ahead. You have to go do, I started like three or four companies before I had a successful company and they're all fucking, you know, I started like, I actually missed, uh, I missed the, uh, the beverage, like the bottled, um, what are those things called white claw phase. I was like oh, 10 yeah. years early. So one of, one of my buddies, um, and I, we started a, uh, the idea was a vodka soda that had, that was healthy and came in a can. And we, we, we were developing this. I have this, seen like, that before. We were developing this like white and we started looking at it and we're like, oh my gosh, there are all these regulations and it's so difficult. And where are we going to get the money to do it? All of that turned out to be bullshit. And it, had we like stuck through it, um, it's possible that, you know, I would be flying around on a fucking private jet now. Um, but that was a really good learning experience because I, you know, I realized um, I, that was the first time in my life where I came up with like a business plan and started talking to different companies about, okay, how are we going to source all of these different things? Started talking to lawyers about what are the regulations for selling this type of thing. And it was a massive failure. Um, but I learned a lot from it. I learned, you know, more about how to run a company, uh, how to be more confident, how to talk to people about business and that type of thing. So it really wasn't a failure at all. It was just the next necessary step in my progression towards getting the skills that I needed to start my own company. Yeah. Uh, this is probably how I see it of also when you make that recognition of like, this is what I want to do, but I'm not going to do it because of X, Y. Mm -hmm. Your example was for that you didn't have tech experience. Mm -hmm. I think just a lot of people are afraid to put in the time to like train themselves on that just in case even then it doesn't work. Because it does take recognizing what is kind of out of your reach, but finding a way to bring it in. That's a really good point. And so that's exactly, people, to, to exactly your point, people don't take the first step, right? So the first step is, really the first step is I have fear about whatever I'm about to do. And people don't get through the fear and see that, okay, I need to get more skills or I need to expand my horizons or I need to start trying new different things and like accepting that I'm going to fail. And as long as you don't get past that initial stage, all of the things that you're talking about, those, those thoughts won't even occur to them 
um, because they're so caught up in the first, like, oh my gosh, should I do this or should I not? I'm worried about failing. I'm worried about how this will look to other people. That's a really big one, right? Like I'm yeah. worried how my friends are going to think about like, well, my friends will think about me if I do this. My family will think about me if I do this. And it turns out once you, like I said, once you meditate and go into it, it's all bullshit. Like everyone who's ever been successful has always had a million reasons why they shouldn't have been successful. Right. Like look at mm-hmm. fucking Elon Musk. Right. That guy's yeah. a total joke. Um, and he might be the first person to put a fucking, <laughs> you know, something on Mars. Um, but like each step of the way, you're going to have new problems. And it's about just recognizing that this isn't a reason that I can't do this. This is something that I have to overcome on the path to achieving whatever it is I want to achieve. And it can be anything. It doesn't have to be like, I want to have a successful company. It could be in your relationships. It could be in you know, where you decide to live or what house you want to buy or whatever it is. It's just understanding that it's a process of, you know, I'm going to try something new. My mind is going to tell me I can't do it. It's going to give me really, really good reasons why I can't do it. Right. But then I have to realize that none of those are in reality true. They're only true if I believe them. Yeah. And to an extent, I guess this is where we disagree. I believe that some things are true. It's just that a lot of people struggle to separate themselves individually from their societal role and what's expected of them. They think they have to play that if that's what society says, when you do have a choice in where you are and what you do. Well, so one of the things you do in economics is look at the macro versus the micro, right? Mm -hmm. So on a macro level, um, you can say that something is generally true, right? So if you look at a particular group in the United States, you can say this group as a whole hasn't done that well versus this other group, right? But if you look at, I think you would agree with me, if you look at individuals, you would never say, like, for instance, Native Americans are all, like, every Native American is always going to be poor, right? They're never yeah. going to, if, if you look at each individual in there, you would say, of course, there are people who become successful and they move up. And all of the things that are applied to the idea that Native Americans have been held down, um, didn't apply to that person, right? And you can say collectively it applies to most of the people in a given group, but that's a, it's, a, it's kind of a nuanced thing where my problem with that type of mentality is that if you apply the collective truth to individuals, I think, it's, I think it gives people the mindset that because I'm a part of this collective group, I individually and personally can never achieve these things. And that's just patently false. Yeah. The truth is that anybody can achieve anything in any country. It doesn't even have to be America, yeah. right? Like there are plenty of people who started with nothing in the Soviet Union and became fantastically wealthy or successful or whatever it was. It's just people are dealt different odds and then you just have to play with your own. But if you're not playing, then. Yeah. And, and the, but, but the, the thing to me is like everyone has, everyone, even very successful people mm-hmm. have all of their, are going to have bad odds, right? Like becoming successful, it doesn't matter who you are yeah. or getting ahead in life. It's not easy. Like, you know, even- No, it's you, never like, gonna be like, easy. Look at our family. Look at the, the I guess, spectrum of success, right? It's, is every urban in Martino successful? It's like, no. And that's like coming from one family. There's, there's a spectrum of, you know, I don't want to say any talking shit about our family, but like people who haven't achieved what they wanted to achieve versus people that did. Mm-hmm. And so- there are odds for the odds aren't good for anybody to get what they want in life. Right. But, and it's true that there are groups where the odds are worse, but just getting out of the entire mentality of like, Oh, my odds gets you pat. I think that opens the door for you to be successful because it doesn't matter where you start. This has been proven time and time again in U S and world history. It doesn't matter where you start. Um, I just thought of a terrible example. I'm not going to use it. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not glad. Um, it doesn't matter where you start. It just matters that you have the mentality that I can achieve whatever I want. And as long as you stick to that, then all of the bullshit about, you know, I'm not good enough or because I'm part of this group or I don't have any money or, you know, I'm not in the right place or the right time or I don't have education or whatever you're telling yourself or why you can't succeed doesn't matter anymore. And like, who do we respect the most out of successful people? It's the person who worked hardest right, for it. It's the person who had the least, right? And ended up gaining the most. Those are the stories that we really respect. 
And for some reason, we don't as much anymore look to those people when we as like as like role models, right? Mm-hmm. And say this person literally came from nothing. And like, you know, Andrew Carnegie is a good example of that. Or, you know, Ben Franklin is a really good example of that, mm-hmm. where they just had no like no education, nothing, and they ended up becoming very successful because they didn't believe any stories about you can't achieve this because of who you are, where you're from, or your education or whatever it was. Yeah. Um, so I do have to end the podcast just because we've now like probably doubled the time of most of the podcast. I do have one final question, which I am inclined to ask everybody. Mm-hmm. What is your warning label? When you meet people, what did you wish like the little FDA approved warning sign would be? Uh, I've, I've become quite good at fighting these people now um, due to several very bad experiences, uh, but liars. Oh, you wish that was just like on other people. Oh, you mean on my label? Yeah. What would my label be? Like warning about me to other yeah. people? The self-reflective um, part. Uh, uh, we'll talk your ear off about really <laughs> crazy stuff that will make you question my sanity. <laughs> okay. Like, don't let me, don't let me start the train rolling or it could not stop for several hours. And then you might just be like, this guy's fucking nuts. <laughs> well, that has been today's episode. That's Thank really you for cool. coming.